0: The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Go ahead and we'll start in Ephesians chapter 5. Um, so we're going to, we took a hiatus and a couple of different studies that we just absolutely needed to do to the benefit of our church. So now we're coming back to the book of Ephesians where we started a year ago, and now we're at the heart, or actually now the home stretch of the book of Ephesians, and we're actually getting to probably the heart of the book, and that's Ephesians chapter 5 and 6, a section I've been looking forward to for a long time because of the importance of it. Um, so start at verse 22 and follow along with me. I'm just going to highlight, a couple. I'm not going to read that whole section, but today what I want to do is introductory for picking up verse 22 next week. Um, but look at Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 22, because this is a unit that goes together, starting in Ephesians 5.22 up through chapter 6 uh, around verse 9. That's a unit that goes together, uh, and it's a common theme that Paul's dealing with there from 22 to chapter 6, verse 9. And basically what he's talking about is family relationships and how you should interact with your family in a biblical manner. Notice in verse 22 of chapter 5, wives, and then he gives a command. So those that are married... There's a command to women there. And he explains what their obligation is as a Christian wife or what God expects of wives. And then verse 25, he transitions and he says, Husbands, I told the wives what to do. Now I'm going to tell you husbands what you should do as a godly husband in your home and how you should conduct and run your family. And he goes all the way to verse 33 because he brings some important parallel theology regarding Christ and his church in there. And then in chapter 6, verse 1, so he's talked to the wives, the husbands. And then in chapter 6, verse 1, children, he gives them a command or an injunction and tells them how they should behave in their home and particularly in relation to their parents. And then in verse 4, he says, and fathers, or literal, or it could be, and parents. Here's what you're obligated to do. So you've got these family relationships here. Wives, husbands, parents, children. This is going to take us several weeks to go through this in detail because we need, to be, we need to slow down and be very practical. There's a lot here that applies to us today. Because for the most part, we are families. Regardless of your status, whether you're married or not, or whether you live alone or not, you're still a part of a family in one way or another. And we're going to talk about that. So there are principles here for everybody regarding your status. Whether you're a child, a parent, married, not married, single... Uh, God's Word has something relevant for you. And also the greater application is if you're a part of this church, you're a part of a spiritual family. And there are principles here that apply to all of us as well in that regard. Paul even mentions that explicitly in one section in verses 25 through following, that that's the greater application. Um, But before we get to chapter 5, verse 22, which I want to pick up next week, is the command to Christian wives. So we'll talk about it next week. I thought it was absolutely necessary and essential to do an introduction to lay the groundwork before we get to all these principles. Vitally important so we understand the context and why Paul is going to say what he says. Um, So in light of that, hopefully in your bulletin you got uh, a handout of the sermon there and you can look at the introduction to that and then I'm going to come up with some principles that I want to glean from Scripture for all of us there that we can learn from. Okay. But before I do, speaking of the family, one thing I want you to know about Ephesians 5:22 through 6, chapter 5 or through 9, is that these are, again, Paul gives a series of commands, imperatives, obligations that we are expected to obey. And there's a couple of things going on here. Paul doesn't assume that this is common sense. If Paul thought that doing these principles was common sense and a no-brainer, he wouldn't go to the great length that he does of writing it out and exhorting the Christians to do this. So, family, godly, holy, family living is not common sense. As a matter of fact, it goes against our nature. Very important to understand that. So, having a good, godly, holy, consistent family life that pleases God in every area, whether in your marriage, how you raise your children, you as children, how you deal with your parents, it doesn't come naturally. As a matter of fact, it goes against the grain of our nature, to live in a way that pleases God in every context of life, including the family. For the most part, families are messed up. I'll never forget, I was visiting Southern California about 12 to 15 years ago down at Grace Community Church where I used to be a member and and served there, and my pastor down there was John MacArthur, and I'll never forget, he was talking about, uh, it was about 12 to 15 years ago when the word dysfunctional began to become popular as a technical term in counseling a clinical term almost. It was kind of a new thing that we have discovered that people have dysfunctions and that people were going to see their counselor for dysfunctions in their relationships and dysfunction in their marriage and dysfunctions in their personal life. It became a very narrow, technical, specific term referring to dysfunctional. And the question was, uh, well, we, we are dysfunctional, and we need to get that straightened out. And he, he'd been hearing a lot of that, and even in his own church, and even as a pastor, getting feedback and questions from people, saying, Pastor John, we, we seem to have a dysfunctional marriage. Can you straighten us out? We seem to have a dysfunctional family. Can you help us out and solve our problem? And his reflection or assessment on the situation was, he just concluded, everybody's dysfunctional. Every family is dysfunctional. Every marriage is dysfunctional. He said that from the pulpit and a kind of... Kind of shocked me and startled me because I'm thinking, whoa, I, I know John and his family and they're very godly and his, I went to school at college with his kids and I mean he's admitting he has a dysfunctional family and dysfunctional marriage and dysfunctional children and he's a dysfunctional dad and the conclusion was yes, that's what he was saying. Everybody's dysfunctional. We're all in the same boat to one degree or another. Look at any family, scratch the surface enough, or a little deeper if you need to and you will find out that family is dysfunctional. Every family is dysfunctional. And that's kind of the theme that I want to lay out today from a biblical perspective. Now, don't just take my word for it, but I want to quote from two respected, well-known family and marriage counselors today in America, and these are, these are Christian counselors, Christian men, highly respected, both of whom have been married going on 50 years and have spent 40, 50 years counseling married couples, uh, families, children, those kind of things from a biblical point of view. And here's... In retrospect, here are some of their observations or conclusions about family living. And again, this is, the context is among Christians. And listen to what they say. When I hear people say, and he's including Christians here because that's what it's about. When I hear Christians say, we have never had an argument in all the years we've been married. I think to myself, do you ever see each other? Do you ever talk to each other? Are you both still breathing? That is certainly not the way it has been for Danita and me. That's his wife. These are Christian counselors. Both of us, him and his wife, are charter members of club disagreement. We have had to learn to come to terms with each other's strong and sometimes unyielding personalities and opinions. Yeah, I like that. Here, he's a this guy is a pastor. He's a biblical counselor. He's an author of books on counseling, marriage, the family, and how to do it a godly way. And after years of marriage and years of being a Christian, he is honest with himself. He is a charter member, maybe a founding member of Club Disagreement, from his point of view, with respect to how he relates to his Christian wife, even to this day. Well, here's another quote, and this is from my favorite biblical counselor of all time, who's now almost 80 years old, and he's an expert. In counseling, and here's what he says in hindsight about family living and marriage from a Christian point of view. The notion that the Christian home is a perfect or near perfect place is decidedly not biblical. The parents in the home fail, and they often fail miserably. They fail one another, they fail their children, and they certainly fail God. The children fail too. They bring home report cards with D's and F's, throw tantrums in the shopping mall, etc., etc. They get irritated with one another. Oh, husbands and wives quarrel. They get irritated with one another and sometimes have serious misunderstandings. These are Christians. Of course, there are accomplishments too, but the point that I want to make is that conditions frequently are far from ideal. That is the realistic picture of a truly Christian home. And then he goes on and takes on the person who might raise the question, well then what well if that's a Christian family, then what's the difference between a Christian family and a non Christian family? And he answers that question. But how, you may insist, does your description differ from the description of the unsaved family next door? This question needs to be answered, and the answer in the answer lies the message of this book that he talks about. A truly Christian home is a place where active sinners live. That's the key truth. A truly Christian home is where active sinners live. But it is also a place where the members of that home admit the fact and understand the problem. They know what to do about it. And as a result, they grow by grace. See, that's the difference. To assess and diagnose whether you have a Christian home or a biblical home or a godly family isn't the absence of sin and problems. It's the question of how do you deal with your sin and your problems? First of all, do you even acknowledge those realities from a humble, honest, biblical point of view? And then after doing that, then you proceed with God's model of how to resolve those problems. So that's an honest assessment of life in the Christian home. So I just, I really appreciate that quote. He's being honest. You know, that's where we need to start as Christians because uh, we get deceived by the world, especially from Hollywood, television, magazines, where a a face, I mean a false facade is put up for us of perfect relationships and perfect marriages and perfect families. That It's a facade. You rip away the veneer. It's not real at all. And Christians are being deceived by that notion. Boy, if our marriage was only like their marriage. You know, if you have that attitude about somebody else, that the grass is greener, that they have a more perfect family or a more perfect marriage or more perfect kids, you're naive, or you're deceived, or you don't know that family very well. That just is not true. So we need to have an honest perspective of our own family and then deal with it accordingly from a biblical point of view. That's what God wants us to do, but it starts with being honest. Uh, we are sinners, and that's what I want to do today in this introduction. So let's go ahead and look at some of the biblical principles that I tried to glean together from Scripture. And I came up with one, two, three, four, five of them. So let's consider these. Um And in the introduction there I put, beginning in Ephesians 5.22, Paul begins an extended discussion on family relationships. The tenor in his writing is corrective and and commanding. He's trying to correct and solve our problems. Paul knows that healthy family living does not come naturally or from common sense, but it results only from God's supernatural directives given in Scripture, coupled with the power to live out supernatural truth by His grace. And before we look at Paul's biblical correctives, In Ephesians, for God to live in the family, we first need to examine how the family got messed up in the first place. That's where I want to start. So let's go with point number one. The family was originally created good by God. It's a simple point, but it is true and it is foundational. And if you're seeking biblical counsel, hopefully this is where they're going to start. Because it corrects our false assumptions about reality and our own family life and everybody else's family life that supposedly looks perfect from a distance. I don't, I don't want to pick on the Mormons because I have friends that are Mormons. I even have relatives, immediate relatives that I love who are in the Mormon church. And in my discussions with my relatives who are Mormons and the differences between our religions and our theologies, one thing that they willingly bring up, that, that they like to point to, is that they have good family lives. They've told me that many times. Relatives I have. Well, we have good family lives. As a matter of fact, I've been told, we have better family lives than you, quote, Christians. And Mormonism prides itself on their family life and the quality of their families and good families and wholesome families and everything squeaky clean. Sometimes that's the image. And the commercials that they run on television, that will often be an emphasis, a point of emphasis. And even in some of their formal literature and writing set out by the church is, they say one of the distinctives of Mormonism that they say is good is not only do they have superior families in this life, but they also believe they will also have families in the next life. That's a part of their theology, that their families will continue into eternity. There's marriage in the next life and so on. And the Bible is clear there is no marriage in heaven. Um, but all that just to say it has to do with the rock bottom theology of their entire system of thinking. That needs to be addressed. That needs to be corrected from Scripture. And that's why we have to go back to the foundation. If we're going to deal with our problems in marriage, family relationships, dealing with children, got to go back to the very beginning and that's where it starts. So go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter two, chapter three. We're going to look at a couple of key verses there. Regarding the family. The family is under assault today. Sam prayed about that. The family is under assault. It has been. But from the very beginning, we know that the family was originally created good by God. A couple of things I want to emphasize there is that God created the family. He invented the family. If you believe in evolution, you don't believe that principle. That's why we have to take the Genesis account as a historical account. This really happened. And God gave us this information. To read it, to understand it, to believe it, to apply it, because it affects our life. This is a true story. This is when the family started. God created the family. And I put some key verses down there. When did God create the family? I put Genesis 1, 27, 26. Uh, God created on the first six days different things in the world. And then at the end of the sixth day, the culmination of God's creation was when He created humanity. And on day 6, verse 26... Says God said, let us make man in our image. This is the Trinity talking, by the way. Let us make man in our image, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man, or humanity, in His own image. In the image of God, He created him male and female. He created them. That's the first family. A man A woman joined together. God created family life. He created marriage. He said so. And then He blessed them. And then look at verse 31. God saw all that He had made and behold, it was very good. The first family that God created, Adam and Eve, was good. It was very good. Meaning it was without sin. They were not sinners at this point. So Adam and Eve as long as they were married before sin entered in they got along harmoniously perfectly all of the time they never argued they never fought they were walking in obedience to God can you imagine that paradise it was very good by the way the phrase good is repeated throughout Genesis chapter 1 look at verse 10 god created on that day and he looked at it and said it was good at the end of verse 12 he said it was good he creates more at the end of verse 18 he said it was good at the end of verse 21 creates more and he says it is good and the verse 24, last word, it is good. He finishes creating the first two humans and he says, not good, it is very good. That was the culmination of his creation. Man and woman who reflect the very image of Almighty Eternal God. And created the first family without sin. Very important to remember that. So this is real. Adam was a real person, Eve was a real woman. That was a real family and a real marriage. You cannot deny that. That is the foundation of everything. It's the foundation of understanding what Paul's going to talk about in Ephesians and how we got into this mess in the first place. God didn't create this mess. He created the first family good, holy, without sin. Uh, look at chapter 2. The first wedding starts at verse 22. Actually, it starts at 18 where it says that uh, it is not good for the man to be alone. Sam read that verse earlier. So God says, I need to create the perfect, complement, suitable, to Adam and God did because everybody else you know, had a partner at that time. There's Mr. Elephant had Mrs. Elephant and they were holding tails walking down the jungle. And so Adam's looking around, well, where's my partner? And Mr. Giraffe had Mrs. Giraffe. So they're scratching each other's neck and so on and so forth. Everybody's got it. So it was not good for Adam to be alone. He needed the perfect suitable helper. God does. He creates Eve. Uh, he literally puts Adam to sleep, takes out one of his ribs and literally fashions and creates the first human being out of Adam's rib which is a miracle. It really happened. It was supernatural. It can't be replicated or duplicated by man because God can do miracles. He is all-powerful. And He created the first human woman out of Adam's rib, healed Adam's side, woke him up, and there was this woman, and God presented the first woman to Adam. And this actually constituted the first wedding that ever took place. Verse 22, The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib, which he had taken from man, brought her to the man. Verse 23, And the man said, he saw his new beloved bride, and he was excited. He said, This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. And for this cause, a man shall leave his... This is the precedent for marriage today that is being attacked and undermined in our country. Right here, verse 24, This cause, a man, singular male, shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, singular female. That is marriage defined by God. Man and woman before the Creator. And there shall become one flesh for life. Verse 25, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed because they didn't have sin yet. So the point is, God created the first family, the first marriage, perfect without sin. Then a problem arose. That's point number two. Satan is an unrelenting enemy of the family and seeks its destruction. Every year it seems like either Time Magazine, Newsweek, or one of the major magazines does a survey of all these Americans and asks them all these religious and spiritual questions and inevitably they get to the question and ask them, do you believe the devil is real? In the last poll that I saw in Newsweek or whatever, over 90% of Americans are Christians. Yippee! Boy, that makes me excited. And in those same polls, they ask them, do you believe in a literal devil? And it's less than 10% who actually believe that. So most of Americans, according to Time magazine and Newsweek magazine, most Americans they don't believe the devil is a real being. The Bible says the devil is real. He is on the prowl. He existed in the time of Adam and Eve because we see him enter the story, Genesis chapter three, verse one. So you've got Adam and Eve, but the first perfect marriage is created, blessed by God, and then all of a sudden, boom! Satan enters into the scenario. Verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field. That's a real snake. A real snake, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman... And then the snake is talking. We find out later that the reason this snake could talk... to snakes can't talk, by the way. Did you know that? That is impossible. Animals don't talk unless something supernatural intervenes. And here you had Satan himself, who was a spiritual being, was able to enter inside of this snake. Demons entered into pigs in the New Testament in the days of Jesus. Here, a demon, Satan entered into this snake. By the way, by permission from God, because God had a plan. But still, it's evil. So Satan enters into the snake. He starts talking to Eve. He deceives Eve. He convinces Eve to disobey God. She eats the fruit. She gives it to her husband. He eats the fruit in disobedience to God. And then all of a sudden... And then they realize they're guilty of the first sin. They are overwhelmed with guilt and shame and they try to hide themselves. And they think they can hide from God. God finds them hiding in the bushes and God confronts their sin. And God rebukes them. God punishes Adam for his participation in the sin. He punishes Eve for her participation in the sin. God also actually punishes the literal snake, the animal. And he gets consequences for his part in the sin, for being a tool of Satan. And God also punishes Satan and his involvement in the sin. And these principles apply to us today. So let's go ahead and look at it. Starting at verse 14, where God confronts everybody. Verse 14, The Lord God confronts the snake he says because you have done this mr snake cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field on your belly shall you go and dust shall you eat all the days of your life why do snakes crawl on the ground and slither because they were cursed by god prior to this maybe they had legs maybe they hopped around maybe they had wings that's a scary thought a rattlesnake with wings look out but anyway literally this was a curse upon the snake And God goes beyond cursing the snake and He curses what was inside the snake. He curses Satan himself that was inside that snake, verse 15. And listen to the curse on Satan at the very beginning. God said, I will put enmity, I will put hatred between you, Satan, and between the woman, which was Eve, and between your seed, your descendants, Satan, and between the descendants of Eve, which would be women or uh, or, uh, human beings, descendants of Eve. And then he goes on to talk about a prophecy regarding the Messiah. But here, here is the curse. Here is the promise that God gave. There is going to be hatred, warring, division between the descendants of Satan, his offspring, demons, and the offspring of Eve, which would be all of humanity and most specifically culminating in the person of Jesus Christ. And that eternal, spiritual, supernatural war would continue all throughout history and it has, even to this present day. Satan is alive and well on planet earth. And what is he doing? Satan is an unrelenting enemy of the family and he seeks its destruction. That's what he was trying to do with Adam and Eve, destroy their marriage. And that's what Satan is doing today. He's attacking marriages. He's attacking the institution of marriage. Uh, But I just put some verses there that talk about the reality of the devil all throughout the Bible and particularly the New Testament. Jesus taught on the devil. Newsweek magazine says that most Americans don't believe in the devil. Jesus believed in the devil. Jesus said he was real. And Jesus warned us about the devil. John chapter 10, verse 10. This is on the heels of John chapter 8, where Jesus said that the devil was a liar from the beginning and a vicious, wicked murderer. And then two chapters later, he says that the thief, and he's talking about false teachers and false teachers who are inspired and motivated by Satan, who is real. And he says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus is affirming that demons are real, Satan is real in particular, and he's seeking to destroy. And he's seeking to destroy families. That's one of the things he's seeking to destroy. The foundation of society and the foundation of the building block of the local church is families. The first institution God ever created was the family or marriage. That was before he created Israel and before he created the church. It's the building block. So if Satan wants to destroy the church, a nation of people, where do you attack first? At the heart of it the very building block of both created by God, and that is the family, and it starts with marriage. And marriage has been under siege from Satan from Genesis chapter 3 on. And it even is a reality today. When was the last time you as a married person thought about the implications of Satan on the attack trying to destroy your marriage? Now, if that thought never comes to your mind, that's, that is dangerous. That, is, that means you're not prepared for the war and the battle. Because when Jesus taught His disciples how to pray in Luke chapter 11, Matthew chapter 6, the disciples disciples came to Jesus and said, Jesus, teach us how to pray. How should we pray? What should our prayer life look like on a regular basis? And Jesus gave them a model of prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Then He talks about the reality of evil that we need to be praying about every single day of our life. Deliver us from temptation and also deliver us from the evil one is literally what the Greek text says. Deliver us from the evil one. Protect us from the evil one. Protect us from Satan. That's what Jesus said to His disciples. When you pray, you should pray regularly, every day, after this model, and every single day when you pray, you need to be praying for specific protection against Satan himself, who wants to destroy your Christian life, your marriage, your family, your church. That's our enemy. So what's the worst thing you can do when you're involved in a war is not be prepared and not know who the enemy is. So that was a command from Jesus. Recognize that Satan is real. He is vicious. He is wicked. He is evil. You need God's supernatural protection against him. So if you're married, you need to start praying that way. God, protect my marriage from Satan himself who wants to rip it to shreds and destroy it. Satan wants you to get divorced so that uh, he can mock God. A couple other verses there that I put on there. Uh, 1 Peter 5.8. The Apostle Peter reminds us, be on the alert, look out. Be on the alert. Wake up, Christian! That's what he's saying. Yeah, I saw somebody wake up over there. Good. That's what Peter was trying to do. Behold. Be on the alert. Wake up. Pay attention. Listen to the details. That's what P- Peter... is passionate here. Your adversary. Your enemy. Your enemy. Not just God's enemy. Your personal enemy. Whether you believe in him or not. Well, I don't believe in the devil. Oh, well, do you believe in Gravity be like somebody saying, well, I don't believe in gravity. Okay, well, stand on top of this ten-story building and jump and then see when you start believing in gravity. And then hopefully by the time you splat on the floor, it will be too late. Same thing with the devil. He is real. It doesn't matter whether you believe in him or not. And so Peter is personalizing this. Your enemy, the devil, prowls about, present tense, the devil is alive. He's alive today. He prowls about like a roaring lion. That is a vicious picture of the devil. He's also called a dragon in other passages, he's prowling around, present tense, like a roaring... some A lion that is prowling around is ready to do what? Ready to pounce, isn't it? And destroy and devour. That is Satan. There's nothing good about Satan whatsoever. I remember when I was in college and knew a fellow Christian friend, and this person became a Christian recently, and in a prayer time together, they were praying for the salvation and repentance of the devil. Satan. But this is a new Christian, and you you admire the heart and the compassion and their belief that God could forgive anybody. But then we had talked to the new believer later saying, you know what, Scripture tells us Satan is never going to repent. He is hardened. We know his fate. He will be cast to an eternal hell. There is nothing good about him whatsoever. God doesn't even want to save Satan. God God, uh, is an enemy of Satan, and we need to have the same attitude. We need to take him seriously. So the devil roams around like a vicious war lion, seeking someone to devour, and especially Christians, their marriages, their family life. Satan is real. Job chapter one, verse nine and eleven, uh, it says at the beginning that Satan presented himself before the Lord. Somehow, God allowed Satan to do that, and Satan made some requests of God, and he said, uh, "God, your so-called faithful servant Job, who's all holy and obedient, I bet you if you gave him some hardships in life, he wouldn't believe you anymore. He'd reject you." He doesn't truly love you, and God said, fine, Job, go ahead. But just don't touch him. And so God gave Satan boundaries by which Job could be afflicted by Satan himself. And it goes on to say that Satan literally killed Job's family, all of his children, about ten kids. So Satan attacked the family of a holy, righteous man. And then Satan even went on to, because of his dirty deeds, he began to affect the very marriage of Job and Job's wife. To the point where Job's wife got so frustrated with Job, she looked at her husband Job, who was a righteous holy man, and she said, curse God and die and get over it with you. So that was very ungodly behavior, but it just shows you that Satan's dirty deeds can have an impact on a godly marriage to the point of destruction. Satan is real. So we need to be aware of it and pray against it like Jesus asked us to do. Number three, the worldly culture is also a hostile enemy of the family and seeks its dissolution. So right now I'm looking at enemies of the family. The first enemy of the family is Satan himself. The second enemy of the family is the culture in which we live, the worldly culture, the godless culture. The godless culture, it's a hostile enemy of the family and it seeks the dissolution, the destruction of marriage. We live in a godless, worldly culture. The Apostle Paul lived in a godless, worldly culture. Adam and Eve lived in a godless, worldly culture after the fall. And every family that ever existed in the Bible from the time of Adam and Eve and their fall lived in a godless, worldly culture that was at odds with God and God's people because the world had fallen into sin. Uh, As a matter of fact, in light of that, that, we are confronted with a godless Culture, look on your outline there. I'm going to skip a couple of verses up to 1 John 5.19. Because of the fall and because of sin that entered the world and because of the temporary curse that God put on the world and everyone in it, the reality is, is that in some ways Satan has full reign. Now he's on a leash and God is holding him and Satan is not allowed to go beyond the stretches of that leash. But Satan has some freedom and some power as he rules over the culture of this world. 1 John 5.19 says the whole world lies in the lap or in the power of the evil one. The present culture lies in his lap. And for the most part, all the ideas and people and institutions, you know, they're just puppets of Satan himself. They are pawns of Satan. That's what the Bible says. 2 Corinthians 4.4, Paul says the same thing. The God of this world, small g, the false God who runs this world, the ideologies of this world, the belief systems of this world, has, that's Satan himself. He has blinded the minds of unbelievers. They are satanically blind. Why is it that you get frustrated when you're talking to somebody who's not a Christian and they can't see the truth and they can't seem to understand it? Even after you explain the Bible, it's not just a matter of your inability to be logical enough to convince them there's a supernatural component there of satanic blindness that is blinding their hearts and their minds, preventing them from believing biblical truth. And the world is filled with these blind people. And they don't even know. They, in Time magazine they say they don't even believe in Satan and little do they know they are in his family, one of his pawns and one of his puppets doing his bidding. That's sad. Uh, Ephesians 2, 2 and 3, we looked at that one when we went through that. The course of this world. You know what that means? The patterns of this world. The institutions of this world. The things going on in this world, the ideologies, the things that are popular, the course of this world, the way this world is run on a regular basis, that's what it's talking about. Well, what about it, Paul? The course of this world is according to the prince of the power of the air. Satan has the reins. He is in control on a limited degree. Now, he was given God's permission to have limited control, like I said, on a leash, But nevertheless, it's real. According to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is Satan himself and his demons, that is now working in the children of disobedience, who are by nature children of wrath. That's just a realistic picture of the unsaved world from a spiritual point of view, from God's point of view. So this world is being controlled by them. We live in a godless, worldly, Jesus-hating culture. Jesus-hating? Yeah, Jesus hating. John seven seven. Oh yeah, look at. Let's go back to John fifteen nineteen and John seven seven. You know, Larry King. He's well known for having those interesting debates. A lot of times, panel, the various subjects, current events. A lot of times, religious things. Uh, a tragedy happens, nine eleven. He gets all these religious experts from all kinds of different religions on the panel. You got your uh, authority on Islam and your authority on the New Age and your authority in. Uh, some other religion and then he might pull in a conservative evangelical biblical christian and they'll talk about the issue and they'll all get along and talk about god generically and they'll all agree we all know to love each other and as soon as the conservative evangelical christian mentions the name jesus everybody freaks out and panics and as soon as one of those guys quotes from the bible and says that jesus is the only way to salvation those other men they get incensed and angry they get angry at the name of jesus and the teachings of jesus shouldn't be a surprise to us. jesus said uh, the world hates me. John fifteen nineteen. He tells his apostles, if you were of the world, of this worldly sinful culture, then the world would love you. They don't love you. But because you are not of the world, this worldly culture, but rather I chose you out of the world, you are one of mine, therefore the world hates you. So if you're a Christian and you feel like in this culture and in this society, you're kind of swimming upstream and you feel uncomfortable and you're going against the grain and you're in the minority, that's good because Jesus said it would be that way. We're swimming against the grain here or against the stream. The world hates you for what you believe about the Bible and Jesus Christ. It's not going to change. John 7, 7, The world hates me, Jesus said, because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Jesus got murdered for a reason, didn't he? By sinners who rejected him and hated his teaching and what he said about himself and about sin. As a result, Paul says in Philippians 2.15, be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. We live in a perverse culture. By the way, in 1 Timothy 3, Paul says, you know what, it's not going to get better. As a matter of fact, it's just going to get worse and worse as time goes on. That's... That could be very depressing, except our hope is that Jesus Christ is going to return to earth and make all things right. That's where the Christian gets hope. Not that the culture is going to get better, but Jesus' return, right? That's our hope. There's a couple other verses that you can look on there. Uh, The last one there, Hebrews 13.4. So we live in this culture that hates God, hates His Word, hates Jesus in particular, and as a result, they hate everything about God in terms of what He has instituted, and His first institution was marriage, one man, one woman, together, for life. It's under attack. It's under siege. It's trying to be redefined even today. Legislation is being written all the time to redefine marriage. God, the good news is God is not going to let it happen. We can see in prophecy, in Revelation, other places, marriage will still be around and it will still be between one man and one woman. So God's going to protect the institution of marriage. He's committed to it, and that's Hebrews 13.4. Let marriage be held in honor honor among all. Let marriage as an institution of God be held in honor among all. This is not just for Christians. This is for the world. Even unbelievers, even those who hate and despise marriage. Uh, Whoopi Goldberg has her own radio program on television, and not long ago she's calling for the destruction of traditional marriage, adamantly. She's on the warpath. Same thing with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, one of our Supreme Court justices, has gone in writing many times for the destruction of traditional marriage, meaning one man, one woman for life. That's God's pattern for marriage, and he says, no, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed, the intimacy within the institution of marriage between one man and one woman, let it be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. God is gonna, you don't need to feel sorry for God in the institution of marriage. He is going to protect His holy institution. And it will continue to perpetuate. Next point. Who's the next enemy of the family? Satan, the worldly culture. And then the next one, point number four, is your family members can contribute to the destruction of the family if their sin is not restrained. I'm not saying your family members are as evil as Satan. Don't get me wrong on that one. But your family members can contribute to the destruction of family life as God has ordained it if their sin is not restrained. And that's why Paul wrote Ephesians 5.22 through chapter 6. He's laying out biblical principles of how to live your marriage the right way, how to be a godly husband, a godly wife, a godly dad, a godly mom, obedient children. And if you do that, God will bless your family life. You defy his principles or remain ignorant of his principles, you'll have a destruction of your family, possibly, happens all the time. Just examples: uh, Colossians three twenty-one. Father, stop exasperating your children. Literally, as the text says. In other words, there were people in the Christian church, parents who were exasperating their children. They were being sinful and wrong. Knock it off, is what Paul's saying. So it goes on. You can ruin a child's life by being an exasperating parent. First Corinthians seven five. Paul writes to straighten out a Christian marriage, and he, he gives this command, kind of abrupt. Stop depriving one another. He's talking about husbands and wives. Would you knock it off? You're being disobedient. You're going to ruin your marriage. Christians, these were a Christian couple that was married. Doing the wrong thing, sinning against one another, and Paul had to rebuke them. Knock it off. Uh, Proverbs 14.1 The foolish woman tears her house down with her own hands because of sin. Proverbs 10 1. A foolish son is a grief to his mother. And then James 3, 2, you know, this applies to every single one of us, doesn't it? That's where we need humility. James said to Christians, we all stumble in many ways. What he meant was we sin. We all sin in many ways. And we take that sin into our family relationships, and we need to guard against it. And Ephesians 5, and the following is going to help us. Guard against the sin that can intrude and possibly undermine and destroy our family living. Point number five, who's another enemy of the family? Well, you can be an enemy of the family if you... So number five. You can be an enemy of the family if you reject God's model. Or I could say it about me. I can be the greatest enemy of my family if I reject God's model and His roles and expectations that He has established for the family. I have seen the enemy and He is me. So again, this takes a realistic attitude, a humble attitude, a biblical perspective... That's why Jesus said before you go rebuking somebody else, look at the log in your own eye. Self-evaluation first before you take out a speck in somebody else's eye. Dealing honestly with your own sin. Otherwise, it will be destructive. Just some key verses there. 1 Corinthians 10:12. The Apostle Paul warned Christians and said, Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. In other words, he's saying don't be prideful. Don't ever think that there's a sin that you're not susceptible to. Because once you get there, then you're self-deceived. And then you're even more susceptible to that sin. Matthew 7.11, Jesus said to His apostles that He called, He said, if you then being evil... That was His assessment of what was going on in their heart. They had sin living in them. And Jesus diagnosed every human being other than Himself as being evil. Present tense, you being evil. You in the state of being a sinful person is what Jesus said to His disciples. They've been forgiven of their sin because he, they knew Him personally except for Judas. But their state of being was evil. And Paul's going to touch on that in Romans 7. Psalm 51 verse 5. Well, when did we become sinful? And David reminds us that we became sinful at birth, every single one of us, even at the point of conception. In sin, my mother conceived me. David is admitting that he inherited a sin nature at the point of conception, not just at birth. The modern day philosophy is that if there is sin at all, you became a sinner later in life or you learned how to sin. You you were born inherently good or innately good. You weren't born a sinner. That's what the world tries to tell us. Totally unbiblical. We were born sinful. And the Apostle Paul, at the height of his ministry in Romans 7, giving a testimony of himself, a biography of the greatest Apostle. Paul does honest self-evaluation and he gives an, an honest evaluation about himself and some highlights that he said, looking at himself, in and of himself. He said, sin indwells me. And then he goes on and says, nothing good dwells in me, in and of myself. Evil is present in me. He's not talking about the fact after he became a Christian, the Holy Spirit began to live in him. But he's saying, even though I am forgiven and I am a Christian and I have the Holy Spirit on my own, I still have sin living in me. It has not been eradicated and sin will be in me till the day I die or until Jesus comes. And that is true of every single one of us. And we need to be honest about it. Sin lives in me. I can say the same thing. Sin lives in me. Nothing good dwells in me. And evil is present in me. Present tense, ongoing, till I die or until Jesus comes. And I take this sin into my marriage. I take this sin into my parenting. And it creates a mess at the McManus house, just so you know. That's why I need God's grace, God's forgiveness, the gospel of Jesus every day of my life as every other member of my family does. As a result, 2 Corinthians 13.5, Paul ends his epistle and says, examine yourselves. Be honest. Pray. That's the second time in Corinthians Paul said, Examine yourself, Christian. Do some self-evaluation. Ask the Holy Spirit to search your heart. As David said, Lord, search my heart and see if there's any evil in me. Even sin I'm not even aware of. God, search my heart. We need to do the same thing. And have God expose it. Have friends expose it. Have our family members expose it. You know. And then I, I'll just conclude with this. One pastor said, and I agree with him, after he'd been married for 40 years, As a Christian, he said, you know, I've come to realize that one of the great, probably the greatest benefit of being married as a Christian is that my spouse could point out my sin every day of my life. Wow. Because that helps with sanctification, doesn't it? And that's rather challenging. And you've got to be a humble person to be willing to accept the input and the fine-tuning and the refining of a family member. Because we, we know each other best, don't we, in the home? In the family, we're going to talk more about that. And we are each other's biggest critics on the inside when you're living with somebody in the family. So hopefully that wasn't too depressing, all these enemies and the destruction. The good news is, is that Paul gives us the solution to victory, a wonderful promise, and you can have a godly, blessed, fruitful, successful, overcoming, vibrant, dynamic Christian family in this day and age because that's God's promise, and we're going to look at that over the next... Several weeks. Well, let's go ahead and commit our time to the Lord in prayer. And then we're going to introduce some new members that we have today, okay? Father, we do thank you for this day. Thank you for everyone that you brought our way. Again, I thank you for scripture. God, as we're able to study together, thank you for the Holy Spirit, who's the ultimate teacher, who opens up our mind to understand these things. And now we ask for the Holy Spirit to apply these truths to our life. God, I pray for the families of Grace Bible Fellowship, no matter what the context, that we can learn from you so that we can have protected marriages, protected family life, and live in a godly manner so that we can know your blessing. And we just pray that you'd be our teacher. And we just thank you for this day as we commit it to you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.